Today we're joined by the apologetics team from Bob Jones University. The first session is on the resurrection. Well, I think you all probably already have heard something about this, but we are the apologetics team from Bob Jones University. And we're going to tell you what Bob Jones University is, if you don't know. And we're also going to tell you what apologetics team, or what apologetics is, if you don't know. But we'll get to that in just a minute. My first question is, how many of you slept in this morning? How many of you are still tired even though you slept in? Keep your hand up. Yeah, that's me. Okay, yeah, that's me. Um, How many of you did not sleep in? How many of you had an incredibly productive morning? You got lots of homework done. Wow, I admire you, and I am not like you. Okay, so um, my team, would you come on up? You can take your mask off. Would you come on up, too? So I want you to get to know us, because you're going to have to tolerate us for the rest of the day, especially those of you that are in ninth through 12th grade, because you'll be back with us after lunch. Um, My name is Wesley, and I graduated from this place called Bob Jones University. I graduated from there uh, four years ago, so that means I'm pretty old. Um, And I did my degree in history. How many of you think four years studying history sounds awesome? Like, wow, that would be incredibly interesting. Yes, anybody? Yes, okay, thank you, thank you. Anybody, like any seniors? <laughs> Heartbreak, okay. Oh, thank you, sir. Yep, how many of you think it sounds like torture? Just be real? Okay, all right, yeah. Okay, I appreciate your honesty. Um, so so a much more interesting, much more important uh, about me is the fact that this is my lovely wife, and we have been married for about a year and a half. Can everybody say aw, aw, and we actually like it. Can you say aw, aw, okay. Why don't you tell us about yourself, love? Okay. Um, My name is a weird one. You ready? It's a guy named Josh glued to a girl's name, Marie. Put together, that says Josh Josh Marie. Yes, but for short, you can just call me Marie to keep things simple. You ought to tell them the story. Yeah, my parents wanted a boy, and God was like, "Mm, no. I'm glad. Very glad. (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) So I came to BJU... Uh, fall of 2015 from Toronto, Canada, and um, I ended up getting a degree there um, in biblical counseling. So that was really helpful. I really wanted to see how God's Word changes people from the inside out, and I was not disappointed. Cool. All right, so we're the two graduates here, and then we've got two young men who are right in the trenches of their college education. So uh, let's see. You've got a mic. Go ahead. Awesome. I am Nathan Dwyer. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, and interesting thing about my name, my last name actually, Dwyer, if you rearrange the letters, it spells the word weird, and these guys will agree it's a very fitting description of me. Um, It's true. I am a zoo and wildlife biology major at Bob Jones, and I'm one credit short of being a senior, so they don't think I'm quite good enough for that yet, but I'm, I'm working on it. Thank you. Hendry? All right, I am Nathaniel Hendry, so... He's Nathan, I'm Nathaniel, so that gets fun sometimes. I actually, the other day, it was really weird. Nathan was introducing himself, okay? I think it's bad when I get the two mixed up, you know, Nathan and Nathaniel, yeah. But Nathan was introducing himself, and he introduced himself as Nathaniel accidentally. Now that's bad. Okay, but go ahead, Nathaniel, sorry. Yeah. So anyway, uh, my last name doesn't mean anything particular, except for maybe Hendry would be a dry chicken, but... yeah. Other than that, it's not. I'm not sure how that's appropriate, but yeah. It's not. Yeah, okay, go ahead. So, I am uh, double majoring in communication and ministry and leadership. It's a way the college has set it up so you can graduate on time but have two degrees. And I'm really happy about that. And I'm a junior and I'm from Tennessee. Cool. All right. Uh, would you mind grabbing a t shirt to bring up here for just, in just a moment? Okay. 
Um, they're in the background. Or Henry, why don't you go grab one because you know where they are. All right, so um, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to take the next few minutes and tell you about this place called Bob Jones University. And I might even tell you why it's called Bob Jones University. And while I do that, Nathan and Nathaniel are going to come around with a stack of cards and a stack of pens. All right? And every one of you is going to get a card and every one of you is going to get a pen. And at the end of the hour, I'm going to keep the cards and you're going to keep the pens. Deal? Okay, we're going to use these pens, or these cards, rather, to uh, enter a drawing for some beautiful Bob Jones University t-shirts that we'll be giving away at the end of the hour. And, like, I make sure the odds are good. So for every 10, car 10 cards that I get, one person gets a t-shirt, all right? You've got a 1 in 10 chance of winning a t-shirt if you fill out your card today. So let me just tell you about the card and what it is. This is a way for us to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, we'd like to be able to send you some information and uh, find out what you're interested in. So on the back of the card, we ask you about majors that you'd like to pursue in college, and that's a way that we actually um, make decisions about majors that we might add at Bob Jones University. So here come the cards and pens. This should not require a great deal of communication, all right? This is pretty simple. If you want to fill this out, it's not mandatory, but I would definitely recommend it. I'm going to ask you to do three things real quick, okay? If you'd like to get your card entered in the drawing, you need to do three things. You with me? Number one, fill it out completely or as completely as you can, okay? Number two, fill it out accurately. It needs to really be you. And then number three, fill it out legibly. What do I mean by legibly? Seventh graders, what do I mean by legibly? I need to be able to read it, right? If I'm up here trying to read off the winners and I'm like, yeah, okay, it doesn't work out so well. So make sure you fill it out legibly. Um, while they pass out those cards and pens, I'm going to go ahead and start telling you a little bit about Bob Jones University. Let me ask you, how many of you have heard of Bob Jones University? Yes, very good. How many of you have been on campus at Bob Jones University? Anybody? Anybody ever visited our campus? Yeah? No? Okay, cool. Well, maybe one day you will. Um, so let me tell you about our campus. Uh, we are... Whoop. Hmm. I think I am frozen, Joe. Okay, now we're good. Yep, it, it's moving forward. The arrows are grayed out. Okay, well, let me tell you about Bob Jones University while you work on those cards. I appreciate that you are seizing the day and doing it even while I am distracted with technology. So we are located in Greenville, South Carolina. Where are we? Greenville, South Carolina. Yes, we're in the beautiful mountainous upstate region of Greenville, South Carolina, close to the North Carolina, no, North Carolina Smoky Mountains. Uh, so there's some state parks nearby and a lot of good things to do, a lot of exciting things to do in the community, in, uh, in, in the state parks and that sort of thing. We are not at a loss of things to do. Um, we have a campus that is 226 acres. That's kind of in between a beautiful downtown district and the beautiful upstate mountainous area of, uh, of, of Greenville. And so there's a lot to do on our campus as well. And in a minute, you'll probably see some pictures of things to do on our campus. But let me first say, start out by saying this. Bob Jones University is a Christian liberal arts university. Do you all know the difference between a Christian college and a Bible college. They're not exactly the same thing. Anybody know the difference? All right, here's a hint. What do you think you study at a Bible college? 
Bible. Okay, yeah, so at a Bible college, your goal is to prepare for some kind of a ministry degree. So maybe you're going to be studying to be a pastor, or maybe you're studying to be a Christian school teacher, or maybe a Christian counselor, um, worship leader, missionary. There's a lot of degrees that you can do there, but they're all focused on um, ministry careers. At a Christian college, especially a Christian liberal arts college, our goal is to study all kinds of things. So on the back of your card, you'll notice that we have a list of the majors that we offer at Bob Jones University. There's over 60 different degrees that you can study at BJU, and we, we pursue those with excellence. I think our education rivals just about any secular college that you might be going to. Uh, we can provide a high-quality education, but we can do it in a Christian context, where our goal is not just to be thinking well and thinking um, carefully about our subjects, but thinking about the way our Christian worldview, our Christian faith, our faith in Jesus Christ connects with whatever we're doing. You know, there's actually a Christian way to be a doctor. There's a Christian way to be a historian. There's even a Christian way to be an English teacher. Yeah, and so our goal is to equip men and women to go out into all kinds of fields with a sense of how the Word of God and the truth of God connects with their field, and then to serve God with excellence in all kinds of places. Are we on board? Perfect. Thank you, thank you. All right, so Greenville, South Carolina. Um, this is downtown area in Greenville, South Carolina, just a couple of miles from our campus. Some other beautiful areas, you can see the mountains in the distance. We've got lots of hiking trails uh, within easy driving distance. Um, and then our campus itself, I'm curious, anybody know in, in our, the center panel up here, up on top, Anybody know what sport that is? Hent, it's not tennis. What is it? Pickleball, yeah, yeah, cool. So we just installed pickleball courts on campus, um, which I'd never played until last semester. A friend of mine took me out there, and uh, it's actually pretty fun. It's kind of like a cross between ping pong and tennis. Okay, so it's like ping pong, except you're on a big court. You're like standing on the court, not standing behind the table. And uh, so it's a plastic ball, and you're using wooden paddle, but it's pretty good. Um, we've also got, just installed some uh, miniature golf, or I guess putt-putt, course sets on campus, so if that's an interest of yours, we've got that as well. <clears throat> so how big is Bob Jones University? Well, we've got about 3,000 students um, in our undergraduate school, and uh, this pictured here is our freshman class from, what, a year ago, I think? Um, so 3,000 students, how many of you would say that's enormous? That's, that's like a lot of people, yeah. How many of you would say that's actually tiny? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I would say we're kind of in the middle. I've I visited some colleges that, that are like 400 people, right? And I visited other colleges that are like 40,000 people, right? And we're somewhere in between. And I think we're big enough that there are enormous opportunities for our students. Um, you're not going to run out of things to do at Bob Jones University. You're not going to run out of people to spend time with at Bob Jones University. But we're we're small enough that you're not going to get lost like a needle in a haystack. So for me, that's a very happy medium. Um, some of the things that define campus life and the way we have our, our student culture at Bob Jones University, one thing is called societies. So societies are student groups. We've got 20 men's societies, 20 women's societies. These become kind of a friend group and an outreach group. They also become an athletic group. So these, these societies, uh, you'll join when you come in as a freshman. You'll pick one that you want to be part of, and uh, then you get to spend the next four years doing things, doing uh, even society leadership positions and that sort of thing within that group of students. Um, so athletic teams, if you're like me and you like playing sports, but you're not good enough to do it on the college level, okay, that's probably a lot of us, um, 
societies provide a great way for you to keep doing sports in college because our societies put together athletic teams. Some are super good, super competitive athletic teams. Um, some, like mine, are really good at academics and they have nice GPAs. Um, so anyway, because my school or my society has nice GPAs and really bad at sports, they let me play on their soccer team, which worked out really well uh, until I got a concussion one day. I went up for a header and the other guy on the opposite team went up for a header, okay, and we got each other, not the ball. Yeah, didn't work out so well. Um, anyway, other opportunities in student life at BJU. One of our goals is to be a community of Christians that's growing together spiritually. And one of the ways we do that is we have discipleship groups, which are small groups of students that get together for fellowship and prayer once or twice a week. Um, so you'll usually these are, are actually done in your dorm. So you get together with a couple of other dorm rooms that are close to you on the same hall for fellowship and prayer in the evening one or two times a week. But right now, because of COVID, we are doing them in the middle of the day when it's easier for our students to be all over campus uh, gathering in other more socially distant places. And actually, one of the cool things for me as a staff member is walking across campus at 11 o'clock in the day when these discipleship groups meet and seeing these pockets of students all over campus praying together, the word open in front of them, talking about the things of God. It's cool to see that the Lord is at work in our students' lives in those ways. Another important part of Christian growth at BJU is the local church. So basically, we want you to come in and plug into all the cool opportunities we have on campus, but on Sunday morning, we want you off campus. Uh, we want you to find a local community of Christians that can become a family for you off campus, not just a group of students, but a group of Christians in all walks of life doing all kinds of things where you can grow. And the reason for that is really simple. Um, when you graduate from college, and you're away from your Christian school, maybe uh, you're, you've moved to a city you've never been in before, so you're away from Christian family and friends. Who is it that's going to help you grow in Christ at that point in your life? It's going to be a local church, right? You're going to find a local church, you're going to plug in, and they're going to be the people who help keeping you going forward on your Christian life. That's certainly been true for me and my wife in, in, uh, in the years since we've graduated. So I just want to say one of our goals at BJU is to be practicing for that time and uh, to be involved in the local church. Lots of fun things to do on campus. Uh, this is a game space that we kind of rehabbed and updated uh, about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago. We also have right in the center of campus Chick-fil-A and Papa John's. Can you just say Amen. Amen. Okay. All right. I'm just curious. How many of you would say if these were your two choices? Because, I mean, we have a dining common too, which has lots of stuff and, and you can eat there. Um, but, and, and most of our students eat most of their meals there. But if you want to get Chick-fil-A or Papa John's, okay, these are open. Um, I'm curious though. How many of you, if you had to pick between the two, how many of you would go with Papa John's? How many of you would go with Chick-fil-A? Amen. My people. Okay. So actually three of the four of us on the team have worked at Chick-fil-A. It's the best place on earth. And, uh, and uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of you. Okay, one of the other cool things about Bob Jones University is that we have more than 45 different countries represented in our student body. So we have a very international student body because BJU's unique combination of high-quality academics and Christian discipleship draws people from all over the world, from all over the United States. I think we've got 49 out of 50 states in our student body and then from all over the world as well. So for me, that meant I got to have friendships with people from South Korea. I've got friends from Uganda. I've got friends from Vienna, Austria. I've got friends from all kinds of different places all over the world. That's a really unique opportunity that you get at a place like BJU. We also have um, mission trips that travel in the summertime. Anybody here interested in a medical career? Like you're interested in becoming a doctor, nurse, physical therapist, some of those kinds of careers. Cool. So one of the really cool mission teams that we send out 
is a medical mission team. One of our, our doctors on campus, Dr. Chetta, takes a group of students to a third world country where they don't have regular medical access, and he takes a group of BJU students who get to practice the medical skills that they're learning in class in a real world context, ministering to people who usually don't have access to that kind of care. That's a really, really unique opportunity. We also have study abroad tours that travel in the summertime, so if that's your thing, you'd actually like to get college credit for traveling and uh, touring other parts of the world. We've got some opportunities like that. Um, as you've already seen on the back of your card, the academic options are limitless at BJU. We've got over 100 different things you can study. So about 60 majors, then you add in minors, concentrations. That brings us to about 100 different things you can study at Bob Jones University. Let me just run through a couple of the big categories. School of Religion. So if you're interested in pursuing a ministry career, you feel the Lord is calling you that direction, uh, this is an excellent place for you to do that. That's what Nathaniel uh, is doing with us. Um, lots of arts opportunities. So if you're interested in graphic design, studio art, uh, things like that. We've got degrees in that category. Music is your thing. We've got some phenomenal music programs. And one of the cool things about this is that even if you're not a music major, you can join some of our music groups and have some pretty unique opportunities. So I was a history major, but for four years, I got to participate in a superb choir program at BJU. I got to travel with those choirs to some unique venues. Our choirs have been in places like Carnegie Hall, so uh, they go to some pretty incredible places. So do our orchestra members. Um, if you're into musical theater, whoops, I skipped something. Anybody a fan of Titanic the Musical? Broadway musical? Anybody into musicals? All right. Yeah? Not yet? Okay. All right. Well, that's a developing taste. I see. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> Bob Jones University has been putting on some Broadway musicals over the last few years. We've been winning national awards for those. Uh, so this, these are some shots from Titanic, the musical, which we put on a couple of years ago. This spring, we're going to be doing, um, what's it called? Tale of Two Cities, which is also a Broadway musical. Um, if you're not so much into the arts world, but you love the technology world, IT, computer science, cybersecurity, anybody here, that would be your interest? You'd like to pursue that in college? Cool. Very good. All right, so we've got a lot of opportunities in those fields. I've already mentioned some of the medical opportunities. Uh, we've got some really superb lab space just updated in the last year, actually, if you're interested in that, that field. We've got a lot of laboratory space for our nursing, physical therapy, pre-med students, et cetera. Um, the thing that make this, makes this all work at BJU is our faculty. So um, we have a 12 to 1 student to teacher ratio. So that means for every 12 students, you have how many teachers? One teacher, which means that we have a small enough group, enough group of students and a large enough group of, of teachers that you really get to build personal relationships with these people, which is really cool, that they're pouring into your lives inside the classroom and outside the classroom. And I just want to say, from my own experience, this, this is the kind of thing that makes a place like BJU totally different than like a community college or even a, a big state school because you're gonna get to build very close personal relationships with your teachers if you want to. And those people are gonna have you over to their homes or take you out to coffee. You're gonna be doing life with them, not just in the classroom, but out of the classroom. That's something that only a place like Bob Jones University can provide. Um, couple other things before I wrap up talking about my favorite university on earth. Um, anybody here interested in, in intercollegiate sports, like you'd like to play for college? Anybody, that's your thing? Cool, very good. Name a sport for me over here. Football? Football? Bas basketball? What else? 
Wrestling? Okay, all right. So at BJU, we have 12 different sports. If you want to come talk to us about the specific sports, come do that. Uh, 12 different sports. We've won 13 national championships over the last few years. Uh, we are now in the NCAA Division Three, and we are also in a Christian college league. So being in two leagues gives our athletes a lot of opportunities. One other opportunity you should know about, and that is ROTC. Reserve Officer Training Corps. Anybody interested in a military career? Anybody thinking you join the military? Okay, all right. I can tell that the seventh and eighth grade are the ones planning for the future the most. I admire that. Okay, so ROTC, this is an opportunity for you to get four years of military training uh, while you're doing a degree at Bob Jones University. So um, if you have an interest in the military, this is a really, really ideal opportunity because you can study the degree of your interest, you can do it in a Christian college environment, and you can graduate ready to commission as a second lieutenant into the Army or the Air Force. There's also some very nice, very large scholarship packages available to our cadets. All right, one other thing I, I should mention. If you want to check out Bob Jones University, but you don't feel like traveling right now, you are welcome to come travel and see us, but you can also visit us virtually. And the way that you do that is just go to our website. You'll see the visit button, um, and we'll actually set up a meeting, a Zoom meeting, where one of our students will actually take you around campus, giving you a live tour using an iPad and talking to you about what's going on on campus, maybe places that you'd particularly be interested in, that sort of thing. All right, without further ado, I'm going to ask you to take those cards and pass them to the aisle, okay? If you're in the center, go ahead and pass them to this aisle, all right? This side, pass this way, and this side, I think you know what to do. Yes, you're already doing it, pass this way. Excellent. And as you pass those cards, I'm gonna show you a brief four-minute video of Bob Jones University to give me a break from talking, and then we'll move on with life. By the way, keep the pens, remember, keep the pens. Those are yours, Bob Jones University. The people here want to be here. People that just are proud, proud to be a Bruin. Well, one of the things I like most about Bob Jones is that they are big enough to have a lot of opportunities, but then small enough that you can get involved in a lot of them. They have a lot of events for you, especially coming in as a freshman. Very intentional events where you get to know the rest of your class. Ended up loving it here and their science program is phenomenal. Wow, they have these awesome labs. I just really loved the health science program. It was challenging, it was rigorous, it was exciting. The training you get is amazing. It's really just an amazing education and it's not just in one specific area, uh, it prepares you really, really well. Even the teachers here at Bob Jones are just, I mean, they love people. And the teachers here invest in you. All of my teachers will take time out of class, sacrifice themselves to help you. God has really blessed this place with amazing teachers. Ever since coming to BJU, I've really learned to depend on God every single day. How Christ is uh, really the focal point of everything we do. Since I've been here, the Lord has done so much. It's crazy. Personally, I love chapel. Dr. Pettit's preaching is my style, by far. I also love how they do themes.
I've just been like eating up every chapel and what we're learning here is, is so we can serve others. And serving the Lord with your peers. And I think that's a really, really cool opportunity that you get at Bob Jones. Which is one thing I am really thankful that Bob Jones has is opportunities that you can get involved. And society was probably the biggest thing that I was passionate about and where most of my friends came from. And society's by far for me the best part of my college experience. It's a cool experience to sit down with guys and not just goof off and have fun, but also pray and read scripture and sing um, sacred songs. It's, society is just something I never experienced before I came to Bob Jones. Just seeing how Christ-centered everything was. You know, they were competitive, but at the same time, it was just all for the glory of God. Playing on the Bruins was very tough. It uh, requires a lot of discipline. Uh, they ask a lot from you, but sometimes very rewarding. And just the music program here too. We have a really awesome program, like world renowned. experience here has been awesome and I've really uh, loved being here. I personally have seen so many people just love it here. I was born here in Greenville. I'm actually from here in Greenville. I was born and raised in Singapore. I'm from Cairo, Egypt. And I'm from Burma. I'm from Uganda. I'm from the Dominican Republic. I'm from Washington, D.C. area, from Minnesota. From Ohio. From Marietta, Georgia. All right. So that's a little picture of Bob Jones University. If you'd like more information, we have a brochure table outside the back doors of the sanctuary here, and you're all welcome to take some brochures. We've got brochures on a number of different things. Um, something that some of you might find really interesting is called our EduCamps. EduCamps are summer camps that are week-long or five days long, and they're about some educational area. So, for instance, if you are really interested in aviation, you can come to Bob Jones University and spend five days at our aviation camp. If you're thinking about maybe going to an, like a policing career, a criminal justice career, we've got a criminal justice camp. If you're interested in theater arts or various areas in music, we've got lots of camps for you. Uh, if you're interested in nursing, we've got a nursing camp where you can come and get some experiences learning from real nursing faculty at BJ and get some experience working with our dummies that our nursing students work with, you know, practice dummies, that kind of thing. There's all kinds of opportunities, and I've got a brochure. It's a yellow and black brochure at our back table about the EduCamps, which you could do this summer. If you are an eighth grader moving into ninth grader or above, you can come to one of our EduCamps. So take a look at that. That'd be worth investigating. But I want to transition now from talking about Bob Jones University to talking about apologetics, because we are the Bob Jones University apologetics team. So, apologetics. What in the world is apologetics? What does it sound like? Somebody help me out. What is this? What? What? Yes, sounds like that. Yes, bless you. Okay. No. What does it sound like? 
kind of sounds like the word what? Help me out, seventh grade. You guys are the alive ones in the room, I know. Yeah. It sounds like apologizing, right? Uh, but it's actually virtually the opposite of apologizing, okay? Because apologizing is when you're saying, look, I did something that I wish I hadn't done. I'm sorry for that, right? That's apologizing. Yes, nod your heads. Yes, you should be awake because you slept in this morning. Yes, thank you. Okay, um, so, but apologetics is virtually the opposite of that because it's saying, no, I'm not sorry for what I believe. So apologetics is about defending your Christian faith. It's the study of defending your Christian faith. So uh, let, me, let me just give you an example. Um, let's suppose that my good friend Nathan was not a very nice guy. And Nathan were to come up to me one day, let's say that Nathan wasn't even a Christian, and Nathan said something like this. You know what? Christianity is stupid, and anyone who believes in Christianity is an idiot. Oof. I've just been given an opportunity to defend my faith, don't you think? Yeah, Joe thinks so. Yep, okay, yeah, very good. I've been given an opportunity to defend my faith. So what should I do? You know what I could do? I could grab him by the collar and whack him on the side of the jaw, right? Yep. Have I just defended my faith? Amen? Amen? Yes, we tried that in the Crusades. Did it work out so well? Yeah, yeah, don't clap. No, you're not actually supposed to clap right now. Okay, we tried that in the Crusades. Didn't work out so well, okay? Um, so what kind of defense do you think we as Christians should be giving? How should we defend our faith? With fists? Yes, ma'am. Okay, absolutely. So we're going to be looking for ways to present the truth. I love that word. You use the word truth. We're looking for ways to present the truth. We're going to do it in a way that's guided by the Word of God, the Bible. Let me ask, if someone is not a Christian, they don't believe the Bible is the Word of God, they don't believe that Jesus was from God, maybe they don't even believe that God exists, how would you help them to see that it's true? How would you do, how would you handle the conversation if someone came up to you and you're like, man, you know, I know you like this Christian stuff and I'm glad it works for you, but look, I just don't see it's real. I just don't think it's real. Where do you go at that point? Let me ask you this. Where do you go when the questions aren't outside? Where the questions are inside? Where do you go when your own heart says, you know, I'm not so sure this is real. I'm not so sure this can be trusted. Well, I'm convinced that that's okay to ask those kinds of questions, not just have those questions asked to you, but to really struggle with that inside. Because when I was in high school, I almost gave up on following Jesus. I'd been raised in a great Christian family. Um, I had a good Christian education, and, and I'd been in some really solid churches, and so I had every reason for accepting my Christian faith except... I had no idea if it was real or not. Like, how do I know? Um, you know, I guess maybe I should put it this way. What was becoming really clear to me was that there were lots of very, very smart people in the world who thought Christianity was foolishness. Do you realize that's true? It is true. There are lots of smart people who think that. Now, there's also a lot of very smart people who think Christianity is the truth. But I started asking myself in high school, and I bet some of you have asked yourself the same kind of thing, like, how do I know that these smart people over here are right and that these smart people over here are wrong? Is that an important question? I think so. And that j launched me into the study of apologetics because I wanted to know what was really the truth. And I wanted to follow the evidence 
wherever it would take me. So, I want you to know this. Apologetics isn't about defending your faith with fists. It's about defending your faith with reasons. With reasons. With reasons that we can show to ourselves and to others that Christianity is true. And over a course of two years at the end of high school, as I began to wrestle and research and study, I began to find all kinds of reasons to follow Jesus. All kinds of reasons to be absolutely convinced that the Bible is the Word of God, that the God of the Bible actually exists, that Jesus really lived and really died and really rose again. But there was something that was really, really clear to me at this stage in high school, and it's this. The Jesus in your Bible makes absolutely crazy claims. Would you agree? Like, let's just think for a minute about some of the things Jesus said. Like, if you read the four books of the Bible that are about the life of Jesus, we call them the Gospels. Uh, anybody know what four books are those? Somebody yell one out. Matthew? Mark? Luke? John. Okay, so if you're reading the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you're reading about the things that Jesus said during his lifetime, he says some things that are absolutely insane. For instance, Jesus said, um, I am the way and the truth and the life, and you cannot get to God unless you come through me. Now, just picture for a moment. Suppose I stood up here today, and I was like, guys, so my name is Wesley, um, and it turns out I'm the way and the truth and the life, and y'all can't get to God unless you come through me. What would you think of me? You think I was loco? Yeah? Nod your heads. Yes? I hope you would think I was loco. Yes? Okay? Yeah, you think, yes, thank you. Okay, you think I was loco. And, and actually, probably Mr. Hyde would be dragging me out the back door, right? Yeah? Okay. So, Jesus said that. Was he loco? You sure? Another thing Jesus said gets even crazier, I think, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, but this is basically what he said. Um, he said this, guys, turns out I am the judge of the world, so make sure you're ready. I will see you on Judgment Day. How would you feel if Nathaniel walked in this morning and told you that? What would you think of Nathaniel? He's on an ego trip? Like, he definitely needs to be locked up. You know what I'm saying? Okay, we'll lock you up. You can sit back down. Um, so, so Jesus said that. Was he on an ego trip? Did he need to be locked up? Let me make this even worse. Not only does Jesus make crazy claims about himself, he also makes wild demands on other people, including you and including me. For instance, Jesus said this. If anyone would come after me... In other words, if any of you want to follow Jesus, y'all want to be Christians? Cool. Here's what's up. Um, if anyone would come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. What does it mean to take up your cross? Like, I don't mean what do you and I think of as Christians today. I mean like when Jesus first said that in the Roman Empire. What did people think if you said, take up your cross? You're going to what? Die. Yeah, okay, so taking up your cross is what would happen when you had just been condemned to death in a Roman court, right? And they wouldn't put you on death row for like 45 years. They'd give you maybe 45 minutes. You'd be beaten. They would lay a couple hundred pounds of wood on your bloody back, and you would drag that cross to the place of your execution. 
And hear this, Jesus says to you, and Jesus says to me, if you want to follow him, it's going to be a bit like that. What's he getting at? Is there a cost to following Jesus? Is it a hard road? Sounds like Jesus thought so, right? Um, a few months ago, I was at a Christian school in Florida, and there was a, a staff member there I was talking with who used to be a missionary in Ecuador. And um, he had known an Ecuadorian pastor whose wife was poisoned to death by the local witch doctor because she was a Christian. Is there a cost to following Jesus in Ecuador? Yeah. But we don't normally experience that in America in 2021, right? People aren't out to poison us because we're Christians. So here's my question for you. Is there a cost for you, for me, to follow Jesus now, here, in 2021? You think so? What's the cost? Somebody help me out. What's that? Life? Okay. It's going to cost us everything? Yeah, I agree, because here's the deal. Your worst enemy in the Christian life is not some witch doctor who's going to poison you. Your worst enemy is not even Satan himself. Your worst enemy in the Christian life is you. And my worst enemy is me. And here's why. All of us like to be king over ourselves. Would you agree? We all like it our way. <laughs> Real? True? Yeah? And here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus will not share the throne with anyone, not even you. Not even me. So Jesus is saying, look, if you want to follow me, it's going to mean every day of your life kicking yourself off the throne of your life and letting him reign on the throne of your life. It means all of your decisions are not about you do you. It's actually about you do him from here on out, and that's not easy. In fact, sometimes it's going to feel like walking to your execution. You with me? That's what Jesus says about following him. Now, does that man have the right to make that kind of a claim on you? It's a good question, and it's a question I wrestled with in high school. And here was the answer I came to. I want to see what you think about it. Yes, Jesus has the right to claim everything from me if, if his claims are true. Is that fair? Like, if Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, if he's really the judge of the world, if he's really God in the flesh, does he have the right to claim everything from me? I think so. But on the other hand, if Jesus is a liar, if he was just a crazy man on an ego trip, or maybe if he's just a legendary mythical figure who never even lived, does he have the right to make that claim on you? I don't think so. In fact, I am absolutely convinced that if Christianity is not true, you should give it up. I hope you will. Because there's no point in living for a lie. 
And it's that issue that made me come to this place in high school where I absolutely had to know. If this is true, Jesus deserves everything. If this is false, get out of here. So, I had to know. So how would we know? How could we even answer that question? Does Jesus have the right to make these claims? Is he really who he claims to be? Well, I think there's one event in history that makes the difference. I think there's one event that either shows us that, yes, Jesus is everything he claimed to be, he is God in the flesh, and you better follow him. Or it shows us that, no, he was a liar, maybe even just a legend. Go find somebody else. What one event do you think I might be talking about? Was that? The resurrection. Absolutely. Because just about anybody can get themselves killed. But listen, not just anybody can rise from the dead. You with me? If Jesus rose from the dead, then his claims can be trusted. In fact, the Bible itself says this. Look, if Jesus hasn't been risen from the dead, your faith is vain. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What does the word vain mean? Anybody know? Somebody give me another word for the word vain. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is meaningless, pointless, absolutely. So do you realize what the Bible itself says? If the resurrection hasn't happened, this Christian church you're standing in, it's meaningless. The Christian school you attend, you pay thousands of dollars every year to go to, yeah, pointless. Your Bible reading, your prayer, your fighting sin, it's all a waste of time unless that man came out of the grave alive. So we want to spend the rest of our time between now and lunch talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And here's how it's going to happen. We're going to investigate the historical fact of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. And uh, over here, Nathan is no longer going to be our very friendly biology major. Nathan is going to be a skeptic. Have I got that right? Yes, you're going to be the skeptic today. Okay, so Nathan's a skeptic. What is a skeptic? Someone who's what? Someone who doesn't believe, right? Someone who's against Christianity. So Nathan's going to be actually bringing some attacks on our Christian faith. These are attacks I've heard from non-Christians, probably attacks that some of you have heard, maybe on Twitter, right? And uh, so he's going to be bringing some attacks. Don't believe anything he says. He's the bad guy. You ready? Got this? Okay. On the other hand, over here, Mr. Henry, Nathaniel, is going to be our expert. So he's going to sit up on his scholarly, or stand at his scholarly desk and provide us some really important historical information along the way. And as our skeptic challenges us, we're going to get some information from our expert and work together as a group to answer the challenge that our skeptic brings. You with me? You ready for this? Yes? Thank you. Skeptic, you're on. All right, so you know, I believe part of what you were saying, it makes sense that this Jesus character, he definitely made some crazy claims. Nobody makes crazy claims like that. No real person makes crazy claims like that. The only explanation for this, for this Jesus character is that he's completely made up. He's just like other mythical gods. Just mythical gods like, like Thor, like Zeus, Neptune, god of the sea, that, that people believed in thousands of years ago, but now we realize they're fake. You know, if, if you want to find 
Thor, Zeus, and Neptune, you don't go to real life to find them. You go to Disney Plus, okay? They're all in movies there. That's where you find those, and Jesus is no different. You know, hopefully, maybe uh, 50, 100 years from now, people will realize that Jesus is just a myth. You'll find him on Disney Plus also, because he is just a myth, a made-up God, just like all those others. Oof. What do you think? Is it possible that this person that you and I hear about from our Bible called Jesus is really in the same category as all these other made-up things, made-up creatures, made-up beings who never actually lived in history? What do you think? If he lived in history, do you think there would be evidence for him? How do we study anything that happened in history? Google, right? Yeah? How about the people who write Google? How do they, how do they study it? Yeah. Excellent. Yes, excellent. You, you use some of my favorite words as a history major. You use the word sources. You use the word records. We're talking about ancient documents written by people who lived back then, the people who were there or who are close to the people who were there who can tell us what was going on. And if you want to study the life of George Washington, you might, for instance, find an old journal written by some friend of George Washington, and he talks about, oh yeah, I had dinner with George Washington, and he was talking about this, and he smelled like this, and whatever, okay? Or you might find a newspaper article written in, uh, by, by one of the um, city new newspapers at that time, talking about one of his victories in the Revolutionary War. Those will be records. So here's my question. Are there records on Jesus? Are there records outside the Bible about Jesus? There actually are. Expert, what you got? Yeah, so when we look at the historical record and people back, the historians who lived during or shortly after the time of Jesus, we actually find 12 different sources that talk about Jesus and about different aspects of his life. So I'll just mention one of them first, and this is from a person named Tacitus. Now, the interesting thing about Tacitus was that he was a Roman, and he was not only not a Christian, but he was opposed to Christianity and thought it was a terrible uh, you know, influence on the kingdom of, or on the empire of Rome. And so this is something that he said about Jesus. He said, Christus, from whom the name Christian had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. So that's a quote from him talking about a person named Christus. Now, Christus is the Latin name for Christ. It, he also says something very important. He says that this Christus suffered the extreme penalty. The extreme penalty. Well, what would that be? Well, it would be the most extreme form of penalizing someone for something they did, which in the Roman Empire would be death and specifically by execution because that was the most painful, torturous way to die at the time. And he also says that the Pontius Pilate was the one who did this. So we see that in these areas, it perfectly aligns with the, what the Bible says about Jesus, that he lived and that he died at, by crucifixion by Pontius Pilate. There's also another source, and this comes shortly after the time of Jesus, called the Jewish Talmud. Now, what's interesting is that this also comes from the Jews who did not believe in Jesus, and they were writing about 
the historical Jesus. And it talks about Jesus who was a, a, a teacher, who was a Nazarene, and who they said was a sorcerer or a magician. So why would they call this Jesus a sorcerer? Well, the, a very simple explanation would be that he did things that they could not explain. Any idea what those would be? Yeah. Yeah, well, you could, you could say that. Or just in general, his, his miracles, right? Because he, Jesus would heal people and they didn't know how he would do it. So they said, oh, he must be a sorcerer. He must be like a witch or something like that. So when we look at these sources outside the Bible that, that talk about Jesus, we can find four definite things that you could talk to any historian who studies the time of Jesus and they would agree on these four important things. The first was that Jesus was a Galilean Jew who lived in the first part of the first century. So, and then the second thing is that he was an itinerant preacher, which meant that he traveled around and would teach people and, and he, would he would gather a large following. The third is that he did miracles that the people who saw them could not explain. And then the fourth is that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate. So when a skeptic tries to say that there was no Jesus, that he never existed, we can point to even sources outside the Bible that say, yes, there definitely was a Jesus who lived and he was crucified. I mean, okay, he lived, he died, big whoop. Why do we care? Thousands of other people lived, and billions of other people have lived and then died. I mean, there have been thousands of people, religious figures who have lived and then died. And like people like, like Gandhi, like Confucius, the Buddha, they live and they die. Why, why, why Jesus? Why, why do we still talk about him today? He lived, he died, that's the end of the story. He did not rise from the dead. Well, we have said that the historical evidence for Jesus proves his life and his crucifixion by Pontius Pilate. And that's impressive. I just want you to think about that. That is impressive. Jesus is not like some great emperor that lots of people would write about. He was a Galilean peasant, and yet we have records of him. But how in the world would we take the next step of proving a resurrection? That's a totally different category, isn't it? How would you even start to argue, yes, we even have evidence that this man not only lived, not only died by crucifixion, but that he rose again three days later? Somebody help me out. How would you investigate that? Yeah. Okay. Well, Colton, right? Could I pick on you for a moment? Would you mind just coming up here? Okay. Poor Colton. Yeah. Um, all right. No, no need to go too theatrical, all right? I just want everybody to, to see you. Okay. All right. Uh, everybody, Colton died. Sorry, Colton. Yeah, yeah. He didn't know what he was up for when he volunteered. Okay, I'm just saying. Um, yeah, actually, he didn't volunteer. I picked him. Yeah, so Colton died. Um, and it was a sad day, and we had a funeral for him up here. You know, we wheeled him right up here. And, and, and would everybody just cry to make Colton feel better right now? Yes. Even upperclassmen? Yes. Yes. Okay, cry. Okay, all right. Just, just make him feel better around himself. Yeah, yeah, okay. So you see how much they would miss you. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so we had a funeral for him, and then we all went out, and we all saw Colton, Colton buried. Okay? Yeah. And then um, two weeks later, you're in here. You're having chapel. Mr. Hyde is making some announcements, and maybe he's talking about a sports event, um, talking about a fundraiser, and just before he walks off the stage, he's like, oh, I forgot to tell you guys, um, over the weekend, Colton rose from the dead, he'll be back in class on Tuesday. Awesome. Yeah. How many of you are like, definitely believe Mr. Hyde right now? 
You have some trusting followers, Mr. Hyde. How many of you are like, uh, I am not so sure about this? Like, I like Mr. Hyde, but not, not sure I believe this. Yeah? Okay? How many of you be like, um, before I believe this, I, I, I'm going to check it out. I better know. Yeah? Like, I need some hard evidence. Yeah? So, any of you going to be grabbing a shovel, running to the graveyard with me to go see what's up? You know what I'm saying? Yeah? A few of you are going to be running as far from the graveyard as possible. True? Yeah? Okay. Okay. But let's just uh, so who's, who's running with me to the graveyard? Just be real. Okay. Yes. Very good. All right. Yes, sir. You, sir, are, what's your name? Tanner. Okay, so Tanner and I get to the graveyard, right? And we dig a hole, okay? And in the hole, we find a wooden box. And we open the wooden box, and there's Colton. Yeah. Has there been a resurrection? Yeah, no. No, there hasn't been a resurrection. But let's suppose that Tanner and I get to the graveyard, right? And we dig a hole, right? And in the hole, we find a wooden box, and we open the wooden box, and no Colton. Has there been a resurrection? Possibly? You sure? Not sure? Okay, so maybe, maybe not. Can, can we be real about that? If the box is empty, there could be other explanations besides a resurrection. Are you with me so far? Yes? Okay, but let's be really real about this. If Colton is in the box, there ain't been no resurrection. Are we, are we all on, on the same page there? Right? Okay, very good. So, if we're going to be able to prove that Colton has risen from the dead, we better be sure that the box is empty. True? And if we're going to be able to prove that Jesus has risen from the dead, we better be able to prove that his tomb is empty. You with me? Thank you, Colton. You may be resurrected. Okay, um, so how could we investigate the tomb of Jesus to find out whether it's actually empty? Should we all jump on a plane, fly over to Jerusalem together, see what's up? Sound good? Yeah? There's a problem, though. We're not sure which tomb. It's true. They've got a couple of different tombs that people think might be the tomb of Jesus, but we're not even sure if it's one of those because it's been like 2,000 years and lots of things can happen in 2,000 years, right? The tomb might not even be there. So can we check it out that way? Yeah, probably not. But what if we were to look into ancient records to find out what the people at the time were saying about the tomb of Jesus? What if we could find out what even his enemies were saying about his tomb at the time? Do you think that would be important? You better believe it. Expert? What you got? Yeah, so when we look at the historical record of what people said at the time about the tomb of Jesus, we find something really interesting. So first I'll talk about what Matthew records in his gospel. He says that after the soldiers went to the high priest and they told them what happened, then the high priest told the soldiers, tell everyone that the disciples came and stole the body. And and then if, you know, you get in trouble, we'll, we'll make sure you don't get in trouble for, for letting the disciples do that. So that was what they were supposed to go do. And then Matthew records something really, really interesting. And he says that this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. In other words, even when Matthew was writing his gospel later on, the Jews were still saying that the disciples had come and stolen the body. And so we can see that that was the common story at the time. What's really interesting is we have another record from about 100 years later, and this is from a, a Christian named Justin Martyr, and he had a debate with a non-Christian named Trypho. And so during the debate, Justin Martyr talks about the arguments that Trypho had been spreading around to tell people about what happened to Jesus. And he said, you have sent chosen and ordained men throughout all the world to proclaim that a godless and lawless heresy had sprung from one Jesus, a Galilean deceiver whom we crucified. But his disciples stole him by night from the tomb where he was laid when unfastened from the cross and now deceive men by asserting that he has risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. Now, 
when you, when you listen to that, it's very clear that the person is not a Christian. They are saying the disciple stole him, he was a deceiver, he didn't rise from the dead. So it's very clear that this person, Trypho, didn't want to help the cause of Christians. But both he and the Jews of the first century, just a hundred years earlier, agreed on something very important. By admitting, or by, by saying that the disciples stole the body, they are admitting that the, bio, that the body was no longer in the tomb. Do you follow that? Let's think through this really carefully. We have in the Bible, and we have records outside the Bible, the fact that Jesus' enemies, when the news of the resurrection started to get out, they started saying, no, 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 no. He hasn't been raised from the dead. Those disciples, they just stole his body out of the tomb. That's what happened. And we have a lot of records that confirm, yes, this is exactly what Jesus' enemies were saying. But wait a minute. If they're saying that the disciples stole the body out of the tomb, they're actually admitting that the body isn't in the tomb. Do you see that? You follow that? The very argument that they're making against the resurrection admits the fact that there was an empty tomb that had to be explained. Even Jesus' enemies knew his tomb was empty, and they were coming up with arguments to explain it. Let's think about it this way. If the tomb wasn't empty, what would those Jewish leaders who didn't like Jesus, what would they have been saying? Yeah, like the same thing we did with Colton, right? Let's just go down, on, down, to, down to the grave and take a look. Let's just roll back that big rock, and if you see a dead Jesus inside, friends, there hasn't been a resurrection. But they didn't say that. They couldn't say that. Because three mornings after the crucifixion, everyone understood that the tomb of Jesus was empty. That's just a historical fact. Skeptic? So, okay, Jesus' tomb was empty. What does that have to do with anything? You said yourself there are other explanations for an empty tomb. Like, I can think of one really easy example. Like, Jesus probably actually wasn't even dead to begin with. Like, you talk about crucifixion, okay? You, you've got crosses here, you've got crosses on the lights, crosses on the, on the pulpit. Okay, how much do you know about crucifixion? Do you guys know how long a crucifixion would typically take? It would take days, two, three days sometimes, for people to die on the cross. And according to your own Bible, how long was Jesus on there? Six hours. That's like 10% of the time. So Jesus was what? Probably like 10% dead. He, he fainted or whatever. Maybe he was taking a nap. I don't know. But the point is, he wasn't dead when they took him off the cross and they stuck him in the tomb and then they wrapped him in this giant band-aid and all of a sudden he wakes up and oh I'm, I'm feeling fine what am I doing in this tomb let me get out of here and then the disciples are like oh the, the tomb is empty he rose from the dead and Jesus is like oh yeah yep I, w I was dead I rose from the dead look at me that's he never died well that's a pretty weir weird one that's a reference to your last name by the way um yeah Okay, what do you think? This is called the swoon theory. And some of you may be like, well, that is a really weird idea. That maybe Jesus never actually died, and maybe he just sort of like recovered in the tomb and came back out, and everybody thought he rose from the dead, right? But actually, I was in Huntsville, Alabama last semester, and I was talking with our waitress, and we got to talking about Jesus, and she said, oh, well, you know, I heard maybe Jesus never actually, uh, never actually died. Maybe he just kind of like passed out and recovered later. So this is something that some people really think about Jesus. So my question is, is it a good explanation for the empty tomb? Well, 
Do we have any evidence in our historical records that no, Jesus was certainly dead when they took him off the cross? Colton? Interesting. Expert, what you got? Yeah, so as you mentioned, the book of John records something very interesting. John 19.3 says that one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and there came out blood and water. Now, what's really important here is, first of all, the, the spear went into his side, right? And so you've got your lungs in here, you've got your heart here, and those are very important parts of life, right? You can't live without breathing. You can go about three minutes unless you're some crazy person who sets world records. And without your heart, you can go maybe a few minutes, right? So, so clearly, those are very important organs. And that the spear went right into those. But then John notes something else that's really interesting. He said, blood and water came out. Now, now blood might make sense, but what's up with the water? Well, there's a doctor named Joseph Bergeron, and he explains what was going on here. He says that a spear entering the chest would first tap a pleural effusion. What is a pleural effusion? It's basically where when you're under a lot of stress, which obviously Jesus would be on the cross, then a liquid builds up around your lungs and also around your heart. And so that liquid would be, is called a pleural effusion. And so it says, if present, having the appearance of water. Next, it would most likely enter the right atrium, causing blood to appear. This would cause immediate death by cardiac rupture, right? His heart would stop, stop to work. It would, it would basically rupture. Inflicting this type of chest stab wound was likely a matter of protocol to ensure that no crucifixion victim escaped death, particularly if the body were going to be released. So what we see here is that John records this detail, which is just kind of offhand as if it doesn't matter, and yet it reveals that clearly Jesus was dead when this happened and because it happened. But what's also really interesting is, is think of who John was. He was a fisherman. Now, fishermen living at, in the time of Jesus, they didn't have Google. They didn't have medical textbooks. How in the world would John have known what a plural effusion is? I mean, did anyone know what that was before? Yeah, right. And, and you guys live in the 21st century where you could have Googled it if you want to, but I mean, most people don't Google that because they don't want to. So, how would John have known about plural effusions? That there's no way he would have known. There's no way he would have known that that's what would happen. And so he records this detail that shows that it, it couldn't have just been something he would have known. He was just recording what actually happened. And because of that, we can know that Jesus was definitely dead. Do you follow that? The fact that John writes about the blood and water tells us absolutely when Jesus came out or came off the cross, he was dead. But get this, back 2,000 years ago, John would have had no reason to write about blood and water unless that just happened to be what he saw. And looking back with modern medical knowledge, we realize, wow, here is clear evidence that Jesus was, was truly dead when he came off the cross. So the swoon theory is dead too. Skeptic? Well, this, okay, sure she was dead, but there are still many explanations for an empty tomb. Like, why don't we go back to what people were saying at the time? That's what, that's what you've been doing. What do people say at the time? And what did people say at the time? The disciples stole the body. That's what you guys were, were just talking about like five minutes ago. So why don't we believe then what people are saying at the time? The disciples stole the body. I mean, it makes sense. Like, if, if, if you or I, if we were followers of Jesus, and then he died, 
You don't want to be known as the fool who followed this guy for three years and wasted your life, lived in poverty, and followed this guy who claimed to be the son of God only for him to turn up dead. You don't want to be that guy. So what do you do? You go, get your buddies, go to the tomb, take his body out, and then you tell everybody, hey, guys, go look at the tomb. It's empty. Jesus, he, he, he conquered death. He rose from the grave. And that's how awesome he is. And, and look how awesome we are for, for, for following him even before this. Because we, we, we knew that. I mean, it makes sense. The disciples just made it up. And, and they stole the body. And they've deceived everybody from then, 2,000 years later until now. And here you are still defending their lie. Ouch. But this is important, right? If the disciples stole the body of Jesus and started the story of the resurrection, what does that mean about Christianity for you? It means it's a lie. It means it's a waste of your time and effort. Yeah? So this really matters. So, let's think about the historical evidence and let's ask, is it possible that that's actually what happened? The disciples stole the body and made the whole thing up. Well, I'd like to give you two points of historical evidence that I think are really, really powerful. But the first one requires some very careful historical thinking. So you ready for this? Follow me carefully. When historians study ancient documents, we find good, true, accurate stories, and we find lots of made-up stories. They are there. There are lots of made-up stories. Do you realize there are actually even made-up stories about Jesus? There really are. There are people who came along a couple hundred years later and wrote their own stories about Jesus. They're like, oh, you know, we, we, want, we don't know much about Jesus' childhood. Let's make up something about when Jesus was a boy. And there's actually a, a book called The Infancy Gospel of Thomas in which, and it was, it was written much later by somebody who was just coming up with stuff because they thought it was interesting. And in The Infancy Gospel of Thomas, Jesus, like, um, he's talking with his playmate as a kid, and his playmate does something mean, and so Jesus just, like, zaps him right there, and, you know, the kid dies, and anyway, that's all cool. I mean, wouldn't we all like to do that when we were kids? But um, anyway, so, so, yeah, so there's stories like that that are totally made up. So here's the question. Is there any way to tell the difference between made-up stories and true stories just by studying the story? And the answer is sometimes. For instance, historians like to look for something that they call the criterion of embarrassment. And this is the criterion of embarrassment. It basically says, some guy would not make up a story that would be embarrassing to himself or his own movement. If you're going to make up a story, you're going to make up a story that looks good, right? Like, this is what we do when we're talking about fishing trips all the time, right? We make up a story, and it's like, oh, yeah, and the fish was this big, right? That's what we do. We make up stories that make us look better, not the fish was this big, right? We always make it look better than it actually is. That's the way people make up stories. So, when we look at the gospel stories, the stories of the resurrection, do they look like made-up stories? Or do they look like somebody was actually telling the truth whether or not it was embarrassing? Well, let's think about this. Who, somebody tell me, who were the first people to discover the empty tomb of Jesus, according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. And probably a couple of other women with them. Yes, a small group of women, right? Who was the first person to see Jesus alive in the flesh after his resurrection? Anybody know? She's already been mentioned. Yes, ma'am. Mary Magdalene. That's exactly right. Also a woman. 
Well, if I'm Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, and I want to make up the story of the resurrection back then in the first century, would I make up a story in which women are the key witnesses to the empty tomb and to the resurrected Christ? What did these ancient people often think about women? What did this ancient culture think about women? Expert, what have you got? Yeah, so there's a historian who talks about the, uh, the view that people had on females back in the time. And this is a man named Josephus, lived very shortly after the time of Christ, just, just within a, f- a few years. And so he talks about, he's an historian, writes about all sorts of things. One of the things he talks about is how people in that time did court proceedings, how they would have cases and how you'd have evidence and how you'd have witnesses. And he says something about testimony and about eyewitnesses. He says, let not, I'm quoting him, okay, let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. In other words, he's saying women aren't trustworthy. You can't trust them. Don't trust them in court. If they say anything, don't worry about what they say. If you got 10 women saying one thing and one man saying the other, listen to the man. That, that's the way they thought about women. They didn't care. Now, obviously, I don't think that. Wesley doesn't think that. Most people now realize that's not the case. But back in that time, that's the way they thought, which is really sad if you think about it. But the point is that John and Matthew and Luke and Mark, they write that women were the key witnesses to the resurrection, the, the first people to see it. And that because of the, and the, those were the people who saw it. So if they were trying to make up a story, they would want to have credible witnesses, people that would be trustworthy to, to use in their made-up story so that people would believe it. But instead, which would seem like a, a very unwise thing to do if you're, if you're trying to promote a lie, they come up, they, they say that women were the first people to see it, and they are the, the key witnesses, even though in that time, women's testimony would have been thrown out of court. Did you follow that? So just think about this side of the room for a moment. I think we've got about eight men and maybe 20 to 25 women, right? So if there was a court case, and this side of the room was in court, and the women were on one side of the argument, and the men were on the other side of the argument, if it was the first century A.D., if we were in the Jewish land of Palestine, which side would win? The men. You know why? Those 20 women weren't even allowed in the courtroom. Yeah. Sorry, ladies. My deepest apologies. But I want to be really clear here. Thankfully, we don't view women that way. In fact, the Bible itself doesn't view women that way. But let's be really clear. The culture in which they were writing did view women that way. So if I'm Matthew and I want to make up a story about a resurrection that didn't happen, but I want people to believe my story, would I make women the key witnesses? Absolutely not. But Matthew did write the story that way. And so did Mark. And so did Luke, and so did John. And historians look at that, and we ask, why would they write it this way? And there's only one good answer, because that's the way it actually happened. And these guys were just committed to reporting the truth. Do you follow? That's a really, it might seem like, like a minute detail to you, but to historians, that's a really key fact. This story passes the test, the criterion of embarrassment. But I want to give you one other fact, and that's this. Let's think about the 12 disciples for a minute. So there were 12 disciples, right? The 12 closest followers of Jesus. And then Judas died. So how many disciples are left? Uh, 11, right? Yep, we can do math. Even, yes, on snow days. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, So yeah, so um, Judas died. So now we've got 11 disciples. And what did these 11 disciples do for the rest of their lives? 
Did they go back to their fishermen jobs after this point in history? No. What do they do, Colton? Exactly. We know from the New Testament, we know from other records as well, that these guys went all over the Roman Empire proclaiming the message of Jesus. And do you know what their message was? It boils down to this. Jesus is alive! And because he is alive, he is Lord of all. And because he's Lord of all, you awake now? You must bow the knee to him. But let's, you with me here? The key point in their message, the center, the heart of what they were saying was the resurrection of Jesus. And how did it go for them while they went all over the Roman Empire proclaiming that message of the resurrection? People loved him, right? People loved them. The Roman government was very supportive, right? Yep. And uh, they got wealthy and influential, and at the end of their lives, they died comfortable old men. Is that right? No. No. These men were beaten, imprisoned over and over again. Some of them were stoned. Others were crucified. Now, is that the way that you would live for a lie? Not me, right? Like, somewhere 15 years into the beatings, I'm going to be like, bro, bro, it was all a joke. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but that's not what they did. These men were, men were willing to live for the claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. They were willing to suffer for that claim. And they were even willing to die for the claim that Jesus is risen from wait, the wait, dead. Wait, 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 wait. So, being willing to die for a claim is evidence that it's true? That's what you're saying? So, okay, people are willing to die for things that, you, that I'm sure you don't believe in. Like, okay, people are willing to die like people 20 years ago, they jumped into planes and they flew those planes into buildings, killing themselves and thousands of people for what they believed in. I'd say that's even more dedication than your apostles because not only were they willing to, for themselves to die, they were willing to take other people's with them. That shows dedication. That shows commitment. That shows belief. If you say that these disciples, what these disciples believe is true because they were willing to die for it, then you have to believe that what these terrorists believe is also true. You can't have one or the other. You've got to be consistent. And if you believe yours, you have to believe theirs also. And if you are saying that what they believe in is true because of what they're willing to do, you are saying that this terrorism is okay. You are complicit in terrorism. Oof. What do you think? Does he have a point? I think so. There are lots of people who are willing to die for what they believe. True? Not just the disciples did that. True? You with me? Okay, so is there any difference between the disciples being willing to die for their faith and the terrorists being willing to die for their faith? Is there any reason we should trust the disciples' testimony but not the testimony of the 9-11 terrorists? What do you think? Somebody else. Let's think about this. Those 9-11 terrorists, were they there in the Arabian desert when the prophet Muhammad supposedly received the Quran from an angel? Were they there? No, that was like 1,400 years before, okay? So were they eyewitnesses to the things they were claiming? No, but let's compare that to the disciples. Were they there in Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified and supposedly risen from the dead? Were they eyewitnesses? Yes. Do you see the difference? Either the disciples knew that Jesus was, was still dead because they actually stole his body and made up the lie of the resurrection. So they knew it was false. 
where they saw him alive. They touched him. They spoke with him. They ate with him. They knew he had risen from the dead, and they were willing to give everything for it. And which way did they live? They lived like it was worth it all because they knew that it was true, and they were in a position to know. Do you see the difference? So, skeptic, these eyewitnesses can be trusted. They saw it, and then they lived for it, and then they died for it. Okay, so, but what? You've got these 11 disciples. You talk about these women, maybe three, four women, maybe more. You have, what, a total of 15, 20 people who believe this? 15, 20 people that you are basing your whole life on? If, I mean, if I just went out and believed anything that 15, 20 people told me, I'd probably believe that Ohio didn't even exist. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Ba basing your, your faith, your life on what 15, 20 people say, it, it's irresponsible. Whether or not it is true, it is irresponsible to put your faith on something that so few people say. How many witnesses do we actually have to the resurrection of Jesus? Yes, sir. Over 150? I agree with you. Anybody got another number even higher? Yes, sir. 500. Where do you get that number? You get that number from the Bible. Okay, expert, what you got? Yeah, so you're, you're right on it. It comes from an ancient document. We, we find this from an ancient, the, the 500 number comes from an ancient document that was written by a church leader to an early church called the book of 1 Corinthians. It's in the Bible. But what's really interesting is that when historians look at the book and they figure out when was this written, that whether they're Christian historians or non-Christian historians, they agree that it was written by the Apostle Paul and it was written about 20 years after Jesus died. So we, we know that that is the date. And that's really important because Paul writes that over 500 people had seen Jesus at one time in 1 Corinthians 15. He writes this. And then he says of whom the greater part, most of them, remain unto this present. They're still alive, although a few had died. In other words, 20 years after the resurrection, Paul is writing this letter saying there are still almost 500 witnesses to the resurrection, and they're still alive. Now, why would Paul say that? Why would he mention that they're still alive? Well, in, in essence, he's saying you can go talk to them. There are these, all these witnesses that our faith is built on, and if you don't believe me, if you don't believe the other apostles, you can talk to the other 500 people who saw Jesus when he was alive. Do you follow that? When historians look at 1 Corinthians, this is really amazing because this is actually pretty much our earliest historical document that mentions the resurrection of Jesus written only about 20 years after him during the lifetime of many, many people who would have known him. And the Apostle Paul writes that over 500 eyewitnesses were still around. Or, I'm sorry, that there had been over 500 eyewitnesses, and most of them are still around. So that tells us two things. Number one, the early church was convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. But number two, they had hundreds of eyewitnesses to prove it. They were willing to talk about these eyewitnesses, reference them, even invite people to go check it out. So I want to kind of recap now, and let's think about the big picture. Um, the life, even the miracles, the crucifixion of Jesus, we have historical records of all of those things. This is no myth. Number two, Jesus' tomb 
was clearly found empty three mornings after his crucifixion. Even his enemies knew that his tomb was empty, and they actually even admit it. Number three, the records we have of Jesus' resurrection in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John look like real historical reporting. They were willing to say what happened, whether it was embarrassing to their movement or not. Number four, the disciples who were the key witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus were willing to live for what they had seen. They were willing to suffer for what they had seen. They were willing to die for what they had seen. They are credible, trustworthy witnesses. And let's finish here. Finally, they're not the only ones. Over 500 people witnessed Jesus after his resurrection and lived to tell about it, and the early church could reference these people to prove that the resurrection had happened. So, I bring all of this up. We had this entire discussion to make one simple point. Your faith is not a guess. It's really not. Your faith is a historical reality. God came into history and he left the evidence behind. This was the conclusion I came to in high school, and it was really huge for me, because I realized that in following Jesus, God wasn't just calling me to hope that what I'd been told was right and then bank on it, that God was inviting me to actually discover the truth, and once I knew the truth, to live for it. I want you to see that if you come to the conclusion that yes, Jesus is everything he claims to be, then there's another conclusion that you have to come to as well. Because if Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, if he's the Son of God, God in the flesh, the judge of the world, the only way to true joy and true peace for you, for me, then there is no better way to live than to take up your cross and follow him. Fair? If Jesus really came out of that grave alive, then his claims can be trusted. And if his claims can be trusted, then he deserves every moment of every day for all your life. He is worth it. And that's the second conclusion I came to in high school. Look, this man is everything he claimed to be, and he deserves me, and he deserves you. So my prayer for me And my prayer for you is that this historical evidence would not just be interesting facts that you can tell non-believers, but that by studying what really happened, you would come to the point of recognizing that Jesus' claims are absolutely true, and that to follow him is absolutely worth it. There is no better way to live. So I'm going to close this section in prayer. We're going to then announce the winners of our t-shirt drawing, and in a few minutes, you'll be going to lunch. Please, though, we're going to be around at lunch, and then high school students, we're going to get to spend some time doing a very, very different investigation this afternoon. Um, But please, come find us. Talk to us about any questions. Something we said, you're like, yeah, I'm not sure that actually proves anything. Come Come talk to us. We'd love to talk more. But let's pray together before we dismiss. Father, I thank you that you have not called us to a vain and empty hope, but to a living hope, because our Jesus lives. And you have revealed yourself in the Word of God, in history, by the resurrection of your Son. And in Him, we can know you. And I ask you would help me and the men and women in this room to count the cost, to take up the cross, and to follow Jesus. 
Because, Lord Jesus, you are truly worth it. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.